0: This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission is to probe the critical debates in archaeology through conversations with leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayokono, or Cayuga Nation. The Gayokono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. An alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayokono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gayokono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. On September 22nd, 2023, heritage consultant and author Robin Bevan met with a panel of SIAMS students and faculty to discuss his book, Monumental Lies, Culture Wars, and the Truth About the Past. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned to Radio SIAMS.
1: Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Radio SIAMS, the first in a series focused on heritage forensics, co-sponsored with Caucasus Heritage Watch and the Cornell College of Arts and Sciences' New Frontiers Grants. My name is Adam Smith. I'm the director of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies and co-director of Caucus' Heritage Watch. With me today as co-host of this discussion is Lori Katchadourian, associate professor in Near Eastern Studies and anthropology here at Cornell and also co-director of Caucuses Heritage Watch. Hello. Lori and I are very pleased to welcome our guest today. Robert Bevan is the director of Authentic Future, a UK-based heritage consultancy, as well as a well-known journalist, author, and critic. In addition to his regular contributions to The Evening Standard and The Guardian, he is the author of two key texts on the precarity of cultural heritage in the early 21st century. The first, The Destruction of Memory, Architecture at War, details how calculated acts of cultural annihilation have pushed architectural heritage to the center of modern conflicts. His latest book, published in 2022, is Monumental Lies, Culture Wars, and the Truth About the Past. Monumental Lies examines how the past has been weaponized by right-wing ideologies in the global culture wars, and argues for the reassertion of a progressive, honest approach to the tangible fabric of the monumental landscape. And it is Monumental Lies that will be the catalyzing text for this conversation, as we explore the relationship between heritage dismantled and disfigured and our imagination of possible futures. Our panel today also includes three student members of SIAMS, and they will introduce themselves in turn as our conversation unfolds. But first, Robert Bevan, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, in opening the conversation today, I'm going to pass the mic to my colleague, Professor Ketch Dorian,
2: Thanks, Adam. Rob, it's great to have you here today. I wanted to kick things off by asking a rather broad question, and I wonder if you could share with our listeners, many of whom probably have not yet read Monumental Lies, uh, what you tried to accomplish in this book, what you see as its most salient or um, provocative arguments, And most significant contributions to the conversations around monuments, architecture, heritage, and struggles over the past. So, the bits that you you feel are the most kind of important uh, nuggets in the project.
3: Gosh, well, the first thing I would say is not just about monuments or statues. It's about monuments and statues within the context of the wider built environment and how politics and ideology are played out in that context um, as particularly in terms of um, the culture wars today and the struggles over the contested um, monuments of the past but also looking at um, hot wars as well um, and in that way it's continuation of the destruction of memory in that it's looking bringing those arguments up to date looking what happened in Syria for instance and that uh, that sort of iconoclastic period, and what that has meant for some of the main actors in the field, such as UNESCO, and where they're going, and and the implications of the changes in attitudes for the material culture and material culture as the evidence of history.
4: Um, hello, my name is Rafael. I'm a 40 year student in the anthropology department in the archaeology track, and. Well, I would like to ask about an absence. You talk quite a lot about Stone Mountain, but and, well, dialectics as well. And there's the, so to speak, dialectical twin of Stone Mountain that's not mentioned at all, Mount Rushmore, which is also a picture of white supremacy over the landscape, broken treaties, and genocide. And erected by I can't remember if he was actually a Ku Klux Klan member or just a sympathizer.
3: Same sculptor. Yeah, involved in both at one point. Yeah.
4: And yeah, I I don't well I think people who sympathize with the Confederacy are very much shunned in most of society. But Mount Rushmore is not necessarily recognized as a picture of what it means to the Lakota and what do we do with those monuments?
3: I think that's true and um, that, that Mount Rushmore has escaped critique in the way uh, some other problematic past presidents have escaped critique. Um, I think people are starting the, with the most egregious places um, and then we can discuss other places too. Um, but what, what those kind of huge monuments, absolutely vast, are particularly difficult to deal with. Um, what on earth do you do? Um, and, um, for Stone Mountain, for instance, I think, um, a, a black activist suggested, um, that we have a freedom bell We're recording Martin Luther King's speech at the top of it. And I think you're not going to, erase something of that scale, All right? So it's additions, it's layers, it's commentary, it's counter-memorials that comment on what's there that are going to be the way forward, I think. But how you achieve that at a, at a meaningful scale is obviously different, difficult because the original is, is so, so vast.
5: Um, hi, I'm Farida. I am a PhD student in the Science and Technology Studies department, working on the history of archeology span and religion. Um, and I have a question that kind of relates to what you were just talking about, which is you kind of say at the end of your book that the way to deal with um, monuments and memorials toward things that are, you know, when you look at them historically, pretty bad. White supremacy, not great. Just going to say it, obviously. Um, but would you consider that the memorial... Mount Rushmore is not – isn't that in itself also kind of a right-wing version of what you're advocating for? Like taking a space that is seen as important for some historical reason, a cultural reason, and then they are adding their own kind of –
3: Historical layer.
5: Yeah, yeah. Like they were adding a historical layer that we now see as – Politically
3: motivated and bad. Yeah, yeah. So now we need to add our own historical layer that yes. identifies that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. No, no, it's true. Mount Rushmore he, places are appropriated for various reasons. And, and that's, uh, there's a, there is a cultural conflict going on about uh, whose history uh, matters and uh, whose narrative comes out on top or who is loudest. And what I would say is that's a continual part of history, and but I, unashamedly, I'm not, um, I'm not neutral on this. Um, I try to be objective, but I'm on the left. I have a emancipatory agenda, and so I'm coming, and I want that agenda to be come out on top. And there's no point denying that in, in, in these kind of contexts. You know, we come of it with an approach to history and to the society we want. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Um, and you know, there will be people who will push back against that, but that's the nature of, of, of the task.
1: Can I follow up on this line of thinking? This is Adam again. Um, because it, it, what I'm interested in is the way in which what is oftentimes phrased as a combat between, say, a true history and an ideological history yeah. is actually a power contest between two ideological yeah. histories. So how do we escape that conundrum of reducing the, the past to merely uh, kind of rush them on, like it just depends on your ideological point of view, because that's where you end up with the evacuation of truth yeah. that you document really nicely in your book. About once you no longer have a commitment to truth, it's you know it's, it's the whole edifice collapses and it can be anybody's past and it becomes manufactured anyway. But you're desperate in the book to hold on to that sense that there is an honest monumental landscape that yeah. we
3: haven't built yet. I think what I'm saying is that the, uh, that the, the, there are the facts of history and then the, there's the way the historical narratives emerge. And they're two different things. But the facts of history, architectural history, monuments, they're the material, the material objects, the facts that, uh, allow us to, um, understand the past and evidence the past. There will be different uses made of that material. Uh, and we can counter something as being more accurate or inaccurate, truthful or lies. But what I am trying to do is looking at ways of intervening in, say, contested sites in ways that allow the f- material evidence, the factual evidence, to remain in situ.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Hi, this is Jamie Luria. I just want to second that, but I'll introduce myself. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate in anthropology, I'm an ethnographer of difficult heritage, um, issues. And I'm really excited about this book. Um, thank you for being here following this trail on, um, the matter of heritage, sort of the material media that we're looking at. I find this discussion that you're framing in terms of the limits of the architectural to be really compelling because in my own work, I'm, I'm really trying to find sort of where the fact and fiction begin and end with regards to the material built environment and also perhaps how they make each other um, through the stories. And you mentioned in your lecture earlier today that you're sort of wary of giving symbols too much power. Um, And you also, I'm quoting you, if that's all right, you mentioned that stories can be more important than the monuments themselves. And so I'm trying to understand maybe... Can the architecture be separated from the story or from the heritage? Meaning heritage as a a story-making um production? And then if stories are making heritage, how does the architecture allow us to get critical of those stories? And and is there is does it have to be an either-or really of like the the facts and fiction or the material and um the stories if if we're trying to get at this sort of um if we're going if we're going to make space for multiple ideologies to speak to their own truth, right? And sometimes we can't make room for both of those, right? But so I'm trying to understand there maybe a little bit more about where the facts and the fiction Gosh. can be read in the in the environment.
3: That's a difficult one. Um I, I I think what I'm saying, and there's a polemical aspect to the book. Is that there is an illusion about the agency or the power or the efficacy that ma- ma- the material object has and the de- and the uh, effect it has on people um and in the architectural world there's a long standing thread of architectural determinism that has a sees a cause and effect between the object and the subject between the object and the person. And this is why I'm really questioning uh, not only our, our our subservience to problem statues and, and the agency they have, but also sometimes the illusion that changing that materiality, changing the commemorative landscape will itself bring about change. And I don't think it will. I think the real agency lies with people and politics. And, and it's important not to think that um and the that that um an object we we as we have to understand the limits of uh the architecture, or the limits of that object's power, of a symbol's power. And I'm with Sarah Shulman in that we I also think we need to understand the difference of differences between um harm and offence. I think that's really important if we're going to make sensible uh decisions about how to deal with these sites. Um, so, can an object be separated from the story? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it's important to understand that the architectural and the monumental landscape is not neutral. Um, it's not. Um, um, it, it's not uh, just an assemblage of bricks and stone. It, the intent behind it is in, is important, and that's true. So, so much in the area of cultural heritage and its distinction of. of and iconoclasm, intent is really important. Uh, what was the intent behind this building? What's the intent behind this monument? And I'm also wanting to point out that although monuments, which don't just mean commemorative monuments or memorials, but could be prominent churches or other other structures within the townscape, um, I think it's important when we think about that townscape, um, we think about statues, that it's actually statues are just the most visible, the most pointy, the most obvious point of contestation. And if you take the UK and the United States as well, you may have um monuments and statues of slavers, but whole cities and city quarters were built on the back of slavery. And if we just focus on the obvious figurative object, sometimes we're missing the the legacy of the slavery period today in terms of um, economic uh, disempowerment and uh, and differentials.
1: Can I follow up on this? Because I wanted us to get into the concept of authenticity, which you bring forward so intriguingly in the the book. And reading it as an archaeologist... Uh, one of the things that uh, struck me was the distinction that we tend to think of between the kinds of values that structure an archaeological or historical record and heritage. So we tend to think of as the ar- of the archaeological record as the domain of fact, as a kind of completest project that description, rigor, and analysis. Yeah. Those are the kind of core values of the archaeological record. Whereas heritage, from its very beginning, is a product of incomplete, highly selective, and therefore fundamentally ideologically constituted, as we've already mentioned. So what does authenticity mean when when it's up to something more than material fidelity or consistency? And here, the example that you brought up that really struck me was the one of uh, Abraham Lincoln's Erzatz cabin. Uh, where in the late 19th century already, the, when the idea of heritage is come, coming to be, fakery is already part of the entire lexicon of making heritage. So what does it mean then to think about uh, authenticity when fakery may not be a pathology of heritage, but it's fundamental to its very existence? So, And, and if that's the case, uh, how do we think about the relationship between the real and the represented, the authentic and the inauthentic when heritage itself has come to be through a process of where forgery is part of the business of heritage.
3: I think that's an important distinction, but also we should recognize that archaeology may consider itself fact-based and ideologically free, but as as problematic as heritage in this regard and the tales that are told. Um, Heritage, yes, it's about there's almost a, 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 a central role it plays in terms of imagined communities, inventing traditions, uh, binding nationhoods together, um, defining in-groups and out-groups, and yes, that's all problematic. And um, where authenticity sits is not to um, try and arbitrate between those narratives, but to provide the, the original material uh with through which to discuss them, and if that material isn't original, as in Lincoln's cabin, where it's not there's actually more than one cabin combined in there at one point or um a rebuilt church or palace in Germany or Poland, I think we need to distinguish between uh the the actual material of history and often reconstructions that can obscure that history. They can elide uh, periods, they can completely erase periods of history. And that's what worries me, particularly in places like Germany today, where places that were destroyed in the Second World War are being reconstructed as if the Second World War and Hitler never happened. If you exclude those facts from history and sometimes voids matter as much as presence then you are you are manipulating the historical record in in ways that can be problematic in the future and the example i gave in the book a primary example is the uh, the record of auschwitz and uh how the uh reconstruction of a of one of the crematoria for um, tourism and memorial purposes actually caused problems, because Holocaust deniers use its uh, uh, its falsity because it is a reconstruction to uh, as part of an argument that the that this didn't happen, and so we need our evidence to be real if we are going to make a case.
2: This is Laurie again. Um, One of the arguments it seems that you develop across the book is to sort of reject the notion that the choice is between bad faith, retain and explain, and tearing down harmful or offensive monuments. And that percolates until we get to the sort of concluding chapters where we begin to see what this alternative third way, this alternative vision uh, consists of, and you talk about layering and changing the meaning without uh, destroying the material fabric and so forth. And all of those interventions that offer a kind of glimmer of hope or optimism for an alternative path, they are, they're are—they're all very local. They they are at the municipal level or at the level of the individual artist. They're also sometimes very fleeting. Something is, there's an intervention that is then reversed and so forth, Um or scales of a bit to municipal levels where there's a competition for an intervention of layering and, and re- redefinition. I want to ask where that might, how that might play out at the international level, because you're also very skeptical of UNESCO, rightly so. I share those sentiments and its capacity to intervene adequately in context of conflict and destruction and so forth. So what is the vision for international interventions on um, conflicts over heritage and the past and architecture and memorials and so forth. Um, Can we see any indications or any sort of signs of some more hopeful uh, development at the level of of international heritage?
3: There are little stirrings, I think, um, internationally. And I think where those stirrings are going to be helpful or hopeful for the future, are where the uh, concern for the material world of cultural heritage meets the needs for humanitarian uh, involvement and human rights, and that we understand more closely that the fate of a material culture or a culture uh, and the fate of the people who produce that culture are intertwined. And I'm involved in organizations like Blue Shield and um, ICOMOS, the International Council of Monuments and Sites, which to date have been very focused on either material heritage or intangible heritage. But only recently, in the last decade or so, Has the those interlinks between the fate of humanity and the fate of communities and and the and the physical world around them started those links of only only now being made and sometimes they're being made in poor ways I argue in the book uh, in ways that UNESCO are championing the idea that the reconstruction of destroyed heritage in conflicts can lead to reconciliation. It may do in some circumstances, but we have no evidence of that. And I want there to be an evidence base for how we intervene. But I also think that we cannot just think of the material objects itself. We have to think of it within, again, with intent. Why was it built? Why was it destroyed? Um, who benefits? Uh, and how do we resist bad actors?
4: Hi, this is Raphael again. Well, Throughout the book, you bring up that it might be a better way to expend energies in fighting for material improvements rather than symbolic change. And I very much agree with that. Then that also made me wonder, why is symbolic change fought against so vigorously? How to phrase this? I wonder if it might be seen as opening the door to actual material change and A road that would rather not be traveled by whomever is fighting against it, in your opinion?
3: That's a really good point. I think the symbol, I'm not saying the symbolic doesn't matter, but like with the architectural determinism and the power of architecture, we need to understand the limits of dealing with symbols rather than um, the reality of a society. It can sometimes, dealing with the symbols can bring about the illusion of change. The idea that we get rid of these oppressive symbols means that society becomes fairer. It may not. It may just hide the operations of power rather than make them more obvious as they are at the moment. And so, and I think some of the, I don't want to be reductivist about it and just say that only the socio-economy, the the context matters that uh that it's uh, police violence or, or, or in economic inequality that matter, and we should just ignore symbols. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the balance between the two needs holding up carefully. And I think one of the why some of the heat around the symbolic question is because we're also dealing with it within an area of identity politics. And I understand the importance of identity politics and value it. But we also need, I also like an identity politics that's rooted in the material and the socioeconomic that's generally intersectional on questions such as class, which is often completely left out of these discussions. Um, so that, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to correct a balance in the book. Um, not, not, not come down on and say symbols don't matter because they do matter clearly.
5: Hi, it's Farida again. Um, I kind of have a question about Reconstruction. So the book focuses a lot on Reconstruction as a form of fakery, you know, like building things that represent a past that is oftentimes mythical or mythologized um, and then also serves to ignore things that did happen. But I'm wondering um, whether or not you believe kinds of reconstruction um, can have a value um, that is potentially more positive and what sort of value you think it might have. Like, How can it be used to further um, the political purposes that you prefer? Or not to get into the ideology question again, but yeah, what sort of value do you think reconstruction can have and in what ways do you think it can be used positively?
3: I think its uses are... the positive use is unlimited. One of the, um, one of the um, contexts in which it does have value, when you is when you're resisting attempts of genocide and cultural genocide and cultural cleansing. If you want to uh, stop uh, people achieving a victory over over uh, groups who who they want to destroy and erase and ex- exile. Um, if you want to achieve a victory to stopping to do that, reconstructing places that have been destroyed as part of those campaigns is important. So places like Bosnia, like Warsaw, old, the old old town of Warsaw, uh, which was uh, systematically destroyed by the Nazis, partly as an attempt to reduce the Slav people to a slave state. In that context, it's entirely uh, right that, um, that these places should be, uh, um, reconstructed as an act of resistance. But at the same time, I would like often for that reconstruction to be critical reconstruction that in- incorporates scars and traumas and layers. So you see the history, you see the changes, you see, you see the, the gaps, uh, and the wounds. Um, so you get the whole of history there and that you also understand that the reconstructed building in front of you is not the same as the building that vanished.
6: Thanks for that segue, Farida. This is Jamie again. I also am curious about um, the ways in which loss and or recovery are sort of um, injected into memorial landscapes and outside of just not just but monuments, maybe aside um, or perhaps are not exclusive from um, memorial landscapes. I'm really interested in the kind of placemaking projects that happen around sites of trauma, such as Auschwitz, for example, and whether you find that um, there's a different approach that's required when dealing with larger scale spaces that signify pain, genocide, for example, um, and whether the, the kind of memory work around memorial landscapes, if they can be separated from monumental or monumentscapes, right? monumental sort of public arenas, Um, what it would mean to approach a memorial space in a different way.
3: I think those larger scale uh, landscapes that we talked earlier are are much more tricky, and I will use Auschwitz again as an example. It's not just that one crematoria, there's a whole debate having about what do you do about the materiality of a site that's crumbling? What do you do about the huts? What do you do about the schemes of hair, the shoes? Uh, and those are very difficult technical conservation questions, but also philosophical questions as well. Do you just like let a site eventually return to the dust from which it came? Is that more honest approach? Is that a more historically realistic approach or do you try uh, to take more and more technocratic non sorry more more technological solutions or difficult solutions to uh, to save a materiality and you end up with the um the the paradox of Theseus ship how how, how much can you place of the material before? The object isn't the object it was before. So these are ongoing issues in conservation and heritage generally, and they are no less uh, pertinent in sites of trauma. Um, but the other thing is interpretation as well. Um, there is a place in Berlin called the topography of terror, which is basically a wasteland with some archaeological spaces on it and a museum, which tries to be very unsentimental about telling the story. Um, of Nazi oppression. It was a site of where the Gestapo headquarters were in. I think what, if I recall, was an old hotel and art school. And what you see on the site today, for instance, partly are, uh, vaults, uh, excavated, which are tiled and were actually part of the ho- hotel and art school, had a very kind of quotidian purpose. Tourists and the, we've got the rise of dark tourism want to see this as, as a site of, uh, Nazi oppression when actually that oppression tended to help happen elsewhere. They would want to imagine people being interrogated in these tiled vaults. It didn't happen. And all the careful curation in the, in the world isn't going to stop people coming to a place with their, uh, previous convictions and previous Prejudices, so, and I'm getting more and more interested in how we interpret it, interpret those sites and how we do it in ways that try and and uh, keep the um, the sort of whether it's the sentimentality or the or the or the or, or, or the bad history out of it. That we keep it. Uh, I think places are more powerful and more effective if they're simple and true. Another case is the Door of No Return um, on the island of Garay, a world-heritage site in West Africa, which um, is seen as a lot of people and lots of dignitaries visit as a place where many Africans were shipped as, as slaves in slave ships to the Americas. A few may have been, but actually that happened further up and down the coast, not at this particular site. Does it matter that this site has become a symbol rather than reality of where this took place? I think it does. I think if we are not going to avoid um, an Auschwitz situation where Holocaust deniers can say there were no holes in this concrete ceiling for the gas pellets, therefore they weren't gas chambers, therefore the Holocaust didn't happen. Um, that evidence is vital. And I think that's the same, um, with the door of no return as well. If you're holding something false as part of the evidence of history, you get into trouble.
1: This is Adam again. Uh, one of the powerful arguments you make in uh, your book is that, uh, One of the key drivers of the monumental lies that you documented is a kind of assertive nationalism, which seeks to create the illusion of a kind of cultural homogeneity in place of the forms of multicultural experiences that are part of the true histories of these places. And we certainly see this in our work in the Caucasus, where Azerbaijan has used cultural erasure to very devastating effect in order to achieve this kind of homogenetic homogeneity of the landscape. Uh, And you also document this phenomenon among the people you call the anti-cosmopolitans of Europe, which is a a great term. Um, But I was curious that a number of the counter observations of prior multicultural histories that underlie those sorts of illusions of homogeneity often recall an age of empire. Uh, So one Question I had was, how do we create a kind of critical politics of heritage that doesn't lean heavily onto a nostalgia for imperialism? Or another way of thinking about this is there a, a European architecture of multiculturalism that isn't an a, imperialist architecture?
3: That's a tricky one because, in some ways, um, there's the phrase of, uh, you know, uh, that decolonialists will. Uh, use is in that term, they would say, we're here because you were there. And so within Western colonial cities, you will get um, a more cosmopolitan landscape um, of mosques, of churches, of temples. But that's emerged out of the colonial experience. But that colonial experience happened. It's, it's, it's history. Um, and it's not just history, it's the present. But, um, and that's, I, I don't think you can escape that history through the architectural. Um, and what I'm concerned about in the book is, for instance, I talk a lot about campaigns in European cities and Australia to resist the building of new mosques or, or one right-wing journalist in the UK has argued that we you know, we should destroy mosques where one of the attendees is later associated with terrorism. There's a desire to erase the physical presence uh, of the other from the city. And we saw that earlier. Where did we see that? We saw that in Nazi Germany with on Kristallnacht. The, sometimes the attacks on the architectural can be a warning from history. They can be a passage of attacks on people. It's easier to break a window than it is to kill someone. So I'm very interested in how we can incorporate the fate of heritage and cultural sites into things such as genocide early warning systems. Um That's only in its infancy. People are starting to look at it a little more. But I think it's really important that the, the, the fate of material heritage can be a warning bell.
2: That's really interesting, Rob. I wanted to pick up on that and ask um, about your thoughts on the genocide convention and its omission of cultural genocide um, and how you see that either as a well as an impediment to what you would like to envision, whereby cultural erasure can be a warning sign for cultural genocide, whether you see any prospects for A a change in the Genocide Convention, or any other way in which cultural erasure and cultural genocide can be taken more seriously vis-à-vis genocide.
3: Yeah, that's a very good question, and it's something I deal with a little in Monumental Lies and more in the previous book. But it's an ongoing concern. Um, The Raphael Lemkin was the Jewish lawyer who framed the original genocide convention. And he was very clear that there were two aspects to genocide. There was the attacks on the body, on the biology, on children, killing, mass murder. But there was also his vandalism clauses, which saw attacks on the identity of a group that, through their culture as part and parcel of genocide. And, um, the, this wasn't included in the resulting genocide convention for various Political reasons, largely colonial and empire nations like the the Brit- Britain and the US, which resisted these clauses because they thought partly it would, um, it would have implications for, their treat- for the treatment of their own First Nations. So they would n- never included in the genocide convention so what we have this is a lacuna between uh things like the Hague convention that deals with the conduct of war and the geneva conventions and the genocide convention and it's as i was talking earlier we need to be bring the two things together the humanitarian the human rights and the fate of materiality and there's a this big gap that needs bridging i don't think there's any hope of the genocide convention being uh being uh revised for the same reasons it was originally altered. Um, But there are other ways forward, and that might be getting organisations such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty to have more of an understanding that the fate of cultural heritage matters. It's only, again, there's only inklings that they're beginning to take that on board. But I'm hoping that they will more in future. And so there's sort of ways around it. There's things like uh, the Dublin Declaration is trying to limit the conduct of war in urban areas, um, which, and as part of that cultural heritage, and to to make that inadmissible. Again, that's... Probably just as difficult, if not more, than trying to, um, um, trying to revise the genocide convention. But I think we still need to campaign and, and let people under, let people be clear that, that, that the vandalism clauses, that the impact on, uh, on a people when they're deracinated, when their culture is erased can be profound. They lose their identity as a group. And we can see the actions of China. Doing that in Tibet, first of all, where they didn't kill millions of Tibetans, but they have have made created done, uh, they have um, undertaken a systematic uh, campaign of erasing Tibetan culture um, material and and intangible, and they're using that same Tibet playbook now with Uyghur. Um, they are uh, not mass killings of Uyghur but there's a re-education camps, there's a destroying of their culture, of vernacular architecture, of mosques. And it's just it's another way of an erasing identity and the meaningful idea of a of personhood and a group
4: Hi, Rafael again and well, this will be very much far out there, and I had not considered this before earlier today when you gave a talk and Adam asked you about the actual power and agency of objects. You talk about, well, you warn against giving too much agency to objects and the danger of it diminishing humans, and you're obviously talking from a European perspective. I would very much have agreed with that until very recently when I started reading about Andean ontologies. And there's non human personhoods and agencies at play that that are very much real in how they shape and have shaped relationships in a society. Yeah, I wonder how how to phrase this, decentering humans might perhaps help understand better the role of monuments, landscapes, and objects?
3: It's not, to be honest, it's not an area I know much about um, in terms of the the Andean uh, example you give. But I would say that we always have to think contextually, and what might be the response in, uh, in one culture isn't same response in another, and there has to be a grassroots, local way of of determining the future of contested sites, rather than a top down and a uniform approach. Every site is different, and I am not. I am not. I set forward a schema of layering and turning sites of honor into sites of shame in the book, but I'm not saying that that's what you do in every circumstance. Sometimes it will be appropriate to take something away. Entirely. Sometimes it will be appropriate to move something elsewhere or to a museum. So we have to be specific and respect the specificity of each. And in terms of power, um, yes, power agency, I, you know, symbols do have a power, but they, what I'm trying to do in the book is to, um, Reset the balance, because I think there's a common misunderstanding about the power the physical environment, especially monuments, have on us and, and the uh, power over us. And that I think that is very overplayed. And I'm trying to cor- be a, something of a correct.
5: Hi, it's Farida again. I kind of have a pragmatic question, I guess, about designating culture. So I think it can be easy to say, okay, well, this building belongs to a particular culture, either because it's a religious building that's built for a specifically cultural purpose, or because it's from a particular period in history and is in a particular location. You can say, okay, well, this is representative of this period in time. But how does that work in the present in, you know, potentially more heterogeneous societies than once existed how do you designate something as representative of, of culture when that culture is changing really quickly? Um, what are your thoughts on that as a topic, generally speaking?
3: I think we have to be flexible and not not be uh, obsessed with fixing things in time. Um, one of my favourite buildings in London, because I find it so interesting, is, the, uh, is a, a structure in Brick Lane in East London, which has been, the place where a succession of immigrant communities have settled from uh, Russian Jews and Bangladeshis and Huguenot Protestants. And this uh, building has been used as a chapel. It's been used as a synagogue. It's now a mosque. And we have to allow that flexibility and change uh, within our cities. Um, and that's um, ab- about keeping... Uh, um, culture alive rather than trying to pin it down and dissect it and keep it fixed
5: I like that. It's like a layering of its own kind A well. layering
3: of yeah.
6: its own, yeah mm-hmm. Jamie here um, That's really interesting, I'm thinking also about uh, what you mentioned about like trying to remove sentimentality or allowing for sentimentality maybe to exist contextually or relatively and I also work with sites pretty intimately that have been converted and many other things from, for example, churches to synagogues or vice versa, back again. Um, and so I'm wondering what you – this is maybe a pragmatic question, but I'm wondering how you would recommend bringing together community or communities, individuals um, – In order to stimulate conversation around these difficult decisions that have that go into actually managing the sites, for example, like when you say that bad statues can be a useful lesson, bad spaces also can be a useful lesson and they can also be good spaces depending on who you're talking to. Right. Mm -hmm. So how to actually convince people without imposing some like kind of banner of expertise or or bringing people together as a uh, space of consultation and dialogue. Um, And convince them to talk to each other because it seems like maybe that's one of the only ways that this works.
3: I I think it's really important to bring people together in a conversation that if you're holding an architectural competition or an artist's competition to change your statue at scale, that you bring people with you. You can't bring everybody with you, but the process is, I think, key to the success of the outcome. Not just the physical nature of the outcome, but the the success of the process, um, and I think that's really important. And I don't want to come across as a stony faced rationalist. I understand people having emotions about a place, and that we need to consider those. But I worry when emotions uh, start to create an ink, uh, say, a historical narrative that's just not true and so I'm trying to, um, trying to find ways in which we um, we can do that. And the example I use throughout the book is the town of Bolzano in the South Tyrol in Northern Italy, which is partly Italian-speaking, partly German-speaking, and how they've come together to deal with problematic uh Monuments from the fascist era, including the largest surviving fascist artwork in Europe—a big relief from what was the former fascist HQ—and um, they've uh, do those arguments to remove it, to cover it up, um, but instead they decided to hang LED letters in front of it in the various local languages, saying with a Hannah Arendt quote, saying, no one has the right to obey, which is like a comment on the fascist slogan and undercuts its meaning. And so you still have the original monument behind, which people can understand, and but you have it undercut and its meaning commented upon by what's in front of it. And I think those are very subtle, simple ways in which you could, you, could, you can um, change the dialogue.
1: It's always very useful to give Hannah right? the last word in any <laughs> conversation. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Our thanks to Robert Bevan for helping us to create the kind of thoughtful dialogue that clearly is fundamental to the way in which the heritage escape needs to take shape over the coming years and decades. Uh, I want to uh, thank you uh, for your appearance here today and also note for our listeners that Monumental Lies is available now from your local independent bookseller, wherever that person might be. Uh, my thanks also to Professor Catchadorian, Rafael cruz Hill, Jamie Luria, and Farid Alafin for giving us today this wonderful conversation. And thank you for listening to Radio Siams.
0: You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and material studies. Our next podcast will be with Jacob Dam from Cornell University. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.